0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 207. And the date of recording is February 14th, so happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there, if, if that is your thing. This episode was recorded remotely. My guest recorded from Louisville, Kentucky, and his name is Ryan Patterson. I first learned of Ryan through the band Coliseum, who I've seen countless times over the years in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And he now plays music uh, in a band called Photo Crime. He also has a shirt company that he runs that does shirts for a number of really cool bands. And then he has a shirt company that you'll have to check out in the show notes because I don't know if I could do it much justice in describing it, but it is punk and resistance themed shirts with cats on it. It's cool stuff. So go to the show notes and you will find links to all of his music stuff and to his business ventures. There's going to be two songs embedded within this episode as well. The first one's going to be right after this intro and that is by Photo Crime and the song is called Love is the Devil. I was really interested in talking to Ryan not only because I'm a fan of his music but he has an in-depth understanding and perspective and experience within the Louisville, Kentucky punk and hardcore and you know alternative music scene. So I always love doing regionally based episodes I'm actually going to be in Kentucky, hopefully, like a month from now, Uh, but obviously still pandemic people, so uh, a lot of these are getting done remotely. So had a great conversation with Ryan, Uh, really thankful that he was able to do this with me. So enjoy this conversation, but first, enjoy the song by Photocrime.
1: A villain in disguise Love is the male that crucifies Love is the illness we can't survive Can't survive Love is the devil so divine Love is the devil so divine Love is the devil so divine So divine, so divine, so divine.
0: Well, first of all, thank you. This is uh, yeah, this is cool for me. And I know you don't know me, and you know, often when I do these with people remotely that we and we haven't met, we have like five minutes to kind of break the ice. So uh, I do appreciate the a little bit of back and forth we had uh, over email before doing this. So thank you.
2: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: I'm not going to to talk about COVID the whole time. I think that that's something that we're all kind of exhausted on. But in talking to people over the last year and doing these remotely there's been quite a range of emotion and productivity from the artists that I've talked to. Um, How has it been for you? Have you had a creative process and like, what's it, how's it been on your, uh, on your psyche?
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, it was pretty hard, I guess. Like, um, like a lot of touring musicians, I had this like weird experience where I, uh, my record was coming out in March of 2020, My new, the new Photo Crime album. And uh, I went to tour Mexico for the first time and there was like a little bit of concern beforehand, but, you know, it was, it was so minor in, yeah. in like U.S. media at, at that time in like January, February of 2020. So went to tour Mexico. I was there for like 10 or 12 days. And then I was in San Diego for a week prior to my U.S. dates beginning. And when that was like the week where everything became weird, you know, so it was like, you know, it was kind of, I'm sure you could recall, it was kind of like centered in Seattle and these assisted living homes. And so I was like, Texting people in Seattle and and asking promoters, like, do I cancel these tours? So kind of my whole West Coast tour kind of slowly shut down over the course of a week. And then I just played San Diego and then went home. And when I got home, it was like, I think I got home, I got home on Saturday and then Sunday, March 15th, California kind of shut down. And so that was all kind of like insane you know and at that time none of us really knew what was going to go on and and one thing that really smacked me in the face is how how silly how naive it was that I didn't see how uh how much it was going to affect us you know Mm -hmm. it was like I it still seemed like it was far away because it was in China and Italy even though I see the world as a very small place and I've been to Italy numerous times, and you know, but it was very. It was like, what, what am I thinking? You know, like I could be in Italy in twelve hours, essentially. Yeah. You know, th- those kind of things. So that was a big, big awakening. Uh, like a, a, you know, one of those things that e- even as worldly as you are as a person, it's still it's you still see this distance that's not really there. Uh, and I understand for people that don't don't travel and haven't traveled the world how those places could seem so far away. Um, So yeah, so so from then on, I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. It was like every routine, every, everything I did in music was kind of went away. You know, Um, my, my cousin died um, in April and it was kind of like related to all this. Like he'd had uh, addiction problems for a long time and we used to play music together. He was in Coliseum originally and he got fired from his job because of of COVID. You know, they they shut down this hotel he's working at, and and he very quickly, I don't know if he was using already, but he he overdosed accidentally and died. And oh, man. and uh, so there's just been this like kind of all of last year was just this crazy thing. You know, all the all the intense stuff like activism going on with like the Black Lives Matter things that were that were a lot of that was centered here because of Breonna Taylor's murder by the police and. I had another friend's a friend through music that I've worked with a ton. His son died at age fourteen oh, in in uh, July. So it was just kind of like I just couldn't. It was like I, I just saw last year as being this kind of river of of shit. You know, kind of like Ghostbusters two or like the <laughs> the the you know the 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 uh, subway is just this river of evil, and you just kind of try to stay above it. So for the most part, I felt. I mean, I, I, all things considered my head stayed relatively clear and thankfully somehow this, this year, I think just that weird non, you know, it's not, it's not real. It's not tactile, but the year rolls over and you're kind of like, okay, this is it. I'm settled into this life. Obviously there's a little less political turmoil right now. So that kind of eases your brain a little bit. You're not getting that chaos to contribute to everything. But since, since this year rolled around i feel a bit more uh settled into it i don't know if that answers your question i guess the question was how it connects creatively
0: yeah for sure um it, does all that i mean there's there's a lot of bad there um yeah is, is that good for your creative price process like do you find that as a source for writing or or does it not matter
2: yeah, no i no i mean you know I, like terrible things happening are, are kind of the, you know, I think they're the antithesis of, of creativity, you know, they kind of zap mm-hmm. your energy and, um, you know, they, they take your brain into other places and, and things like that. But, um, I think my, I think for me and a lot of other musicians I talked to, it was like when the pandemic hit and the shutdown happened, everybody instantly thought they should be immediately making music. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a lot of people like that and everybody felt guilt, myself included, that, that you weren't immediately writing. And it's a funny concept because of course you're not going to be, because you're in shock and you're, 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 you're adapting to this new thing and, and, and you're navigating this weird life. And when I did start writing a new music in like July, um, June, July, maybe. It was funny to me that I'm like, oh, from March to June, I didn't make any music. Like, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, that's totally acceptable. Um, So I wouldn't say that that negativity helped me be productive, but uh, being productive helped me stay away from the negativity. Mm. You know, like when I write music, I, I, I stay very, very focused on it. Like, it's kind of like, at the forefront of my mind and I work on it every day. And and I found maybe about 10, 11 years ago that that works best for me, like really seeing it almost like a job, because I I think you have to stay into that, in that creative mindset. And when you get out of it, even for a few days, it's very hard to get yourself back on track. So that really helped. I mean, having that focus uh, made a huge difference for me and, and, and remembering that I make music for myself and that, whether I'm ever able to tour again or whatever happens with a record or anything like that. Like I make music because I want to make music. I'm driven to make it. I enjoy making it. And so, uh, that was interesting and different than usual because I I think there's always this focus of like, what's the next step and really trying to enjoy the, the current activity of, of creating music was, was really nice. So it helped, but, that, you know, that dark shit, it doesn't, you might write about it, but it's, you know, you'd rather not, you know, like, you know, you'd rather not, there's always something dark to find in your psyche, you know, or in the world. So like, obviously you don't want, you don't want to be inspired by your true heartbreak or true loss and things like that, you know.
0: New music aside, uh, a lot of musicians, in the absence of having a physical space to play in, have done all this digital stuff now. For me, I mean, the full band thing, I've seen a a, a few bands do like a full band on a stage without a crowd. That's a little weird to me, but I think a lot of the sort of more singer-songwriter kind of acoustic stuff has actually translated really well, and I've actually quite enjoyed. I was thinking that your photo crime material may translate to doing something like that. Have you ever thought to try to do that acoustically?
2: I thought about it. I mean there's been uh, not acoustically per se, but like there's been a lot of talk, especially at the beginning of me doing live streams or things like that. But it's very weird like being a a, a quote unquote solo artist that's that's like, you know, a a a large chunk of what I do is electronic music and that's just not interesting to me mm. to watch like i you know i started touring solo entirely solo in 2019 and that was a big challenge and took a lot of work in terms of lights and setting an atmosphere and and and, and what i felt i could do to make the show interesting without other people there and i and i enjoyed it you know and i don't think it's something i always want to do but it's something i think i can pull off but doing that with like a static camera or even a couple angles without any energy from an audience or movement I just, it just doesn't really work for me i feel and it also feels honestly just too exposed mm. you know it feels very like very raw for me so while I've thought about it i it, I don't know it, it hasn't it hasn't clicked in a way that I think I could want to do it or pull it off
0: mm-hmm. I've been, um, you know, I've been listening to bands and and going to shows since I was maybe 14. Uh, And I'm now in my, I'm now 34, right? So that's been 20 years. So uh, that's quite a long time that I've been listening to bands and and checking things out. And I think maybe about 10 years ago was the first time I had purchased something from Shirt Killer. Like there was the, the Florian Prince at the time with like the wolf head on it. Um, that became a shirt. Um, I never realized that that was your business. Um, have you, have you ever had to, I guess, like in adult life work a more civilian job or have you been fortunate enough that you've always been able to sustain yourself in the creative field?
2: Uh, I haven't really worked normal jobs my entire adult life. So, and I, I actually think, to, as a point of correction, uh, I think the Florian print you got f- was maybe from Shirts and Destroy.
1: Oh, yes, another, yes, you're right, right.
2: Yes. They, they worked with him. I never worked with him, although he did do the cover art for a Coliseum split seven inch once. But, um, but yeah, I, when I was like, I first started touring when I was 19. I uh, played bass in this band called the Enkindles that were like a had kind of been an emo band in Louisville emo post hardcore and then kind of transitioned into like a little more rock little pop punk kind of rock up in the crypt influenced and we I'd been in other little bands you know local bands and had done weekend trips and things like that but not much to speak of and those guys asked me to join their band when I was nineteen and so those were the first tours I did. And around that time, I would kind of work random jobs. Like I worked at a grocery store for a few months or like, you know, one job I was like a, kind of like a maintenance guy at like mm-hmm. a, a mall department store. So it was like, I would unload trucks and I would uh, like take out the trash. And, you know, sometimes I would clean up the toilets, you know, just like it was, it was kind of a <laughs> insane job. But also like, I kind of love these weird jobs I had as a kid because I could, fuck off and not do any work, you know, always like hiding. And, and I mean, I worked at Walmart for a month or two once and would just like leave. Like I was the cart guy and I would like (laughs) go outside and just leave in my car, you know, and come back hours later. So um, I was not a good employee at any regular job I had. And I tried college a few times, but I would always kind of like drop out to go on tour or, you know, spend the, the, tuition money on on uh you know like a, a music release you know was, so that was always my focus and so when I, when i was not sure what age maybe 20 21 uh, uh initial records was a label here in louisville that was it started in detroit moved to louisville and a lot of louisville bands were on initial and so was that band the Enkindles that i've been on or been in and so I just started going over there and hanging out every day. Uh, I was working a telemarketing job down the street, and I would go to their office and just just hang out, you know, and and help out. And eventually, I was around enough that they hired me, and I was the zine guy. Like I would, you know, write to zines and email zines and call them and and, and mail them records and. So I was kind of like what we now would call a publicist or press agent, but back then it was just the zine guy, and um, that was cool. And so through that, I ended up doing a lot of other things over the course of, I mean, it's funny, it seemed like a lifetime, but I think it was probably like seven years, six or seven years that I worked there. Um, And I ended up co-running and booking our, our festival, Crazy Fest, that we did, which was like a very groundbreaking music fest it kind of like took these smaller diy music fests that were going on a lot in the 90s and turned it into a larger more professional thing before that was everywhere you know before there was any of that other stuff that was is like there's one in every town but back then this was very very big and then i was the graphic designer and i was the label manager and production manager and uh so i kind of did it all and then eventually the label closed and at that point I just focused full-time on graphic design and on my own freelance work, you know, I've designed like, I don't know, hundreds of albums and for bands and thousands of t-shirts uh, for myself and for many, many other bands. And then at some point, a, part, a friend of mine that I worked with at Shirtkiller, we, I mean, at, at initial records, we, Started doing Shirt Killer. We did some other projects, but then Shirt Killer was run by a screen printing company here in town and they weren't good at the shipping aspect of it. Uh, you know, like they shipped a record of a band I used to be in in just like a uh, manila envelope, <laughs> you know, and somebody wrote me and said, This record was destroyed. You know, there was no cardboard in there or anything. So my business partner at the time and I went to these guys and said, We can take the Shirt Killer idea and have it become way better than you will ever do than you can imagine and and you know for this this term of this contract we'll screen print everything with you so i screen printed everything with those guys for maybe 14 years you know and eventually my business partner left and and now it's just me and uh so that's been pretty crazy i mean that's like fully become my you know, my income, my career. And in addition to that, like four years ago, I started doing this shirt, this clothing line called Cat Magic Punks. And there's, that's a whole other story. And there's all sorts of stuff to talk about about with that. But that's become the biggest selling item on Shirt Killer. So that's pretty awesome too, that I'm like able to succeed with this, this other art project that's fully my art and fully my ideas and It does pretty well, and I also I own I own the store that sells the shirts, and um, see, that's pretty crazy, man. Like I've never uh, I, I worked a couple random jobs. Like I worked at a really amazing cult video store here uh, around 2012 in a downtime from touring, and I needed some extra money, and I did uh, some valet gigs with a friend who worked for a valet company, and that was really interesting too. And and actually, both those like taught me a lot. Um, but those are like my only jobs outside of punk rock DIY jobs my entire adult life. So it's, it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if, if you think about, I don't know, playing a show to 200 kids, it's likely at some point, every one of those 200 people had it in their head like, oh, I'm going to live a life in the arts. I'm going to uphold my ideals, my, you know, my politics, and it's hard enough to keep those ideals and politics until later in life when you get things like, I don't know, a mortgage or a whole bunch of kids and stuff right. like that. But to, to actually sustain yourself and not have to, I don't know, whatever it is, go the route of becoming an accountant or something is, yeah, you're pretty lucky. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's very cool. I mean, it's, you know, it's wild. And like I said, like there is a mortgage and car payments and all that stuff. There are no kids and that makes it easier for sure. But you know a lot of logistical things like health insurance and yeah. things like that. Like you don't you don't get those things working for yourself. I mean, as any small business owner knows. And I will say it's mostly been a struggle. Uh, it's not been a lot of money, generally, but it's been enough, and I've made it, and I have a really great life, and it's very easy and 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 fulfilling. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think like. As a kid, I think I understood really quickly that the bands I loved weren't very popular. You know, like I I think maybe if you grew up, even in punk, like if you grew up and your exposure to punk was Nirvana or whatever, then, you know, you knew their history, but but you also knew these people as multimillionaires. And I think when you're a kid who like grew up on hardcore seven inches and and discord records and touch and go and all that kind of stuff. And you didn't, there was no career path for true success and you knew most bands broke up after a record or two. And I remember as a 19 or 20 year old that like, I've got to run a label or I've got to do something else. I have to do something else that is fulfilling that is outside the lines and is separate from the, the clear path but also allows me to make music and do all that. And it's it's very rare. And, um, you know, I, I, pride is not a word I use. I don't, I wouldn't say like I take pride in it per se, but I'm, I'm happy about it. It's, it's cool. And, and it's one of the things that's enabled me to make music a lot longer than a lot of other people with far less success as a musician. Um, I'm not bound by, making money as a musician because it's, I do it purely because I love it. And like, mm-hmm. if money comes in, it's cool. If it doesn't, that's cool too. And that's, that's rare, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, when you were young, can you recall, I don't know, like the, the gateway band or person that got you interested in the world of punk?
2: I mean, when I was a kid, uh, it was definitely like, Discord records and Ian Mackay and 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 all that stuff, Fugazi. Like, I think, you know, there were all these different threads, right? Like skateboarding was hugely important because, you know, back in the time when like skateboarding and punk were very connected, and you'd see, you'd see skaters wearing shirts and stuff like that and thrasher, but the main thing was this uh this catalog called sessions, and it was like skate boards and skate clothing, but the back page of their catalog, it was like a, like a heavier newsprint catalog would have band shirts. So you look at this back page and it would have Joy Division and Misfits and Minor Threat and, and whatever else. And I remember that was like my first exposure to that stuff because I mean, they were tiny, right? Like you're talking about like a, (laughs) you know, like a one inch shirt, you know, and, and I just, that artwork, before I understood what it was, I probably drew the Misfit Skull before I heard them, you know? And then there would be, I grew up in a small town about an hour south of Louisville called Elizabethtown. And that's where I first started skating and first started doing bands. And I didn't know there was a scene in Louisville. I didn't really understand that there were local scenes. I I think I, I didn't really put that much thought into it, but I I think I just thought that it existed in Washington, D.C., and New York City. I think it, I just thought it existed in big cities and, uh, there were like local, like classic local freaks, you know, that like with like combat boots and, and, and leather jackets with misfit skulls painted on them and things like that. So that, I remember seeing that stuff as a 11, 12 year old and being like, holy shit, like this is scary. Like, what the fuck are these dudes about? You know? And, um, there was a kid, <laughs> a kid, uh, who uh, actually in hindsight was probably super sketchy. Like he said some, <laughs> some like sketchy racist things when we were kids oh. that I, that, you know, you just didn't, didn't click. Uh, and I guess cause of that, I won't say his name, but like he had this huge tall hair, like, like in my mind, he was like the human personification of the dude on the cover of the cramps, bad music for bad <laughs> yeah. people. And he would like, you know, he just, this really tall hair and he was really small and skinny and, he would skate in combat boots and he could ollie super high. Like when he used to stack decks sideways to ollie over him, if he he could do like, you know, ollie over five or six decks. But that guy was always into the misfits and, and black flag and shit like that. And so all that stuff was huge. And then once I started getting into buying tapes when I was a kid, discord was like, you started to understand that it was like okay, minor threats on Discord, and I don't remember what else early on I was buying, but you'd see that label. So you go to the store and you buy that label, and if, if it was Caroline Records, who was distributing all the Misfits stuff, you know, you buy everything on Caroline, and some of it sucked, but uh, that was that was an entryway, and you'd look at thanks lists. And I remember being on vacation with my parents in Florida and buying some Wax Tracks cassettes, which is like the Chicago industrial label, buying a few of those and not knowing what they were. And that was not really understanding that there was like a difference between electronic music and industrial versus regular punk and hardcore. And I remember buying Fugazi repeater cassette and the year was 1990. And it was like, oh, that's what that's now. You know, Like I I think prior to that, it was like, seemed very old right you know it seemed like something that was released in 1981 you're like okay I don't that's ancient right when you're 13 or 12 and so when I discovered those things were happening then that was like really huge and then from there it was like I was obsessed with discord I mean I bought every discord release and you know started seeing Fugazi and 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 there was a, a a compilation that they distributed called S- uh, State of the Union, and it was a compilation of DC bands. Not all who were on Discord. A lot of them are really obscure. And I bought the cassette, and you could write off for this booklet, this zine that came with the LP, and they would mail it to you if you bought the cassette. And that thing, man, like it changed my fucking life. Like it, that is like ground zero for my life change because it it was all about vegetarianism and veganism and anti-apartheid and, and political idealism and, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff that like I had never been exposed to that. You just, that was just not, that stuff wasn't really a concept, you know? I mean, and, and so that was like mind blowing. I mean, I just scoured that, read it over and over and over. And I mean, these pages of this zine were like stupid, chock full of information, you know, like things that were photocopied down to where like, you know, my, my 43 year old eyes wouldn't be able to read them, but like those, those 13 year old eyes could really take it in. So that, that changed everything. So like me and my friends, like, you know, we became vegetarian and we stopped smoking and drinking and and we just were like all about this shit. And, and then the first band I ever went to see was uh, Jawbox, who were a Discord records band. I went and saw them in Louisville and I was, I'm not sure if I, I can't remember my exact age, maybe like 14 or 15, my parents dropped me off at the show. And that kind of opened me up to like the existence of Louisville as a music scene and Louisville mm. having local bands and local labels and all that kind of stuff. So that was a big change too, you know? And, and it was weird, man. Like, you know, you're like, uh, <laughs> you're just like this, like, Shit-eating kid from a little town, you know. So you come in and it's scary, it's it's actually like terrifying and and intimidating and um, overwhelming and and and. But yeah, like, you know, it's like some of those things you just—it's all you want to do after that. So we started doing our own bands and shows in our town, and eventually I brought Louisville bands down. So, um, but definitely like that Discord scene and, and ethics and vibe, like all that stuff was like really the turning point for me and, and I was obsessed with that stuff and, and st- still am, you know, really. Um, so yeah.
0: I grew up on Long Island. Um, and if there was any band that kind of defined the sound that would come out of Long Island, it was a band called, I mean, who you likely know a band called Silent Majority. And mm-hmm. if you want to talk about, I don't even know, like second wave emo, like the bands that, became like really popular at the time on like vagrant records, like Long Island had uh, Taking Back Sunday. I think even Mm -hmm. their early stuff had like some remnants of Silent Majority, but a lot of the more melodic bands, um, even harder bands that had some more melodic stuff, a lot of them did so with some influence from Silent Majority. Yeah. Was there any singular band or a group of bands that defined like a Kentucky or a Louisville sound?
2: Maybe. I feel like there are a few different, um there are different like uh, streams to the Louisville sound, right? Like I think for me, when I was a kid growing up, it was 100% this band called Endpoint that was kind of like... uh you know, I think they existed from like the mid to late eighties to like, uh, the mid nineties. And, you know, it's kind of weird music in hindsight. It's like, it's kind of melodic, but like kind of heavy. There's maybe a little bit of metal. Like, it's very interesting in hindsight, that kind of that nineties emo core, you know, stuff. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's, hard to, it's it's interesting because there's 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 almost nothing like that kind of stuff. I mean, Silent Majority falls into that a little bit, like where I feel like they're maybe even a little more melodic, like um, but yeah, endpoint was kind of one of those bands when I was a kid, like I was obsessed with them. I mean, I loved them. They were they were the kings of Louisville hardcore, you know, and they they were around at that time, like you know, like when Silent Majority was around and like I played Long Island, Staten Island with them in the Enkindles. And uh, I don't remember if I played this place, but that Pewak place, you know, it was like a huge warehouse where they did shows, so that majority of did shows in Long Island. And it was similar in Louisville, that that like post-Nirvana era where like local scenes and hardcore got so big. and um, And after that, it just kind of changed where it was like, it became really mainstream mm. and like the local scenes kind of went pretty underground. But... See, on the 90s, that was it kind of like endpoint point falling forward. There were all these kind of other bands that fell into like the the sound of that. So that was kind of the Louisville thing, and that's like what my high school bands wanted to sound like. But it's funny because in I, I wasn't, I was aware of this stuff, but as a young, you know, a shitty young kid, like I, I never really get like listened much to like Slint and uh, all that, the Louisville kind of post-rock and indie rock stuff. But I think... I think that's truly like the Louisville sound. I mean, that's mm. Slint. Spiderland is like without a doubt, the most important underground record to ever come from here. And that, that like lineage of squirrel bait to Slint to shipping news and Four carnation and all that is like really important. And I think that had the biggest impact on the world, uh, without a doubt of any music here, uh, So that's to me is like, is the Louisville sound more than anything, you know? And then, but then, you know, there's so many different things. I mean, of course there's like this, the music, my brother Evan and I made in the, throughout the, you know, 2000s uh, that was kind of like heavy, but, but melodic, but like a lot heavier than any other Louisville hardcore had been at that time. And, uh, I don't think anybody would consider what we did a Louisville sound. Maybe I don't know, but uh, I feel like our music kind of came at a point where people outside of Louisville saw it as a as a Louisville thing. But in, inside Louisville, I don't, I don't know. It didn't feel like it had that much impact to me. But it's hard for me to gauge, you know. But so I wouldn't consider the things we've made as a Louisville sound or any music I've made as an adult, really. So I do think, yeah, it's interesting.
0: I, I do think it was different, though. Um, it, to me, I, I don't know. I live very much in my head, so like when I'm listening to music, like I'm often uh, it's almost like movie montages in my head. And you know, like, like Black Cross or, or Coliseum. To me, it's very much like like motorcycle music, if that makes sense. <laughs> like when I was yeah. a, when I was a kid, my dad I would, I would get in his car and he would tell me he had a, a hot rod. It wasn't a hot rod; it was just like a regular car. I didn't know better, but he'd be like, "We're gonna put on cruising music," and he would always play "LA Woman" woman by the Doors, and then nice. <laughs> that song "Radar Love" uh, by Golden Earring. Um, yeah, and not to say like, "Hey, that's what Coliseum sounds like," but to me, I don't know. There's like a there's like a a rock sound to it that it's. I don't know. It's like gritty. It's like gasoline. Like, I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't
2: know. No, for sure. I I think that's, that's, you know, there was, there was a, it was when I first got into punk and hardcore, I didn't like anything that was heavy. Like I didn't listen to metal. I listened to hair metal a little bit before I got into punk, but then, you know, I didn't listen to Metallica when I was really into music. I kind of listened to it before I was really like into punk and hardcore. like, I never heard Slayer till I was, like, 19 or 20. I just didn't listen to that shit. And I remember when bands were heavy and would yell and stuff and hardcore, I didn't like it. And there's this band called Guilt that was kind of, like, one of the first really noisy, heavy bands from Louisville. And that was a big transition for me into, like, gruffer things. But I remember at some point after I'd done all these different bands that were attempting to be more melodic and that I kind of in my early 20s when i was finding my voice as a musician I, I was like heavier music suited me at that time you know it like suited my voice and and yeah with 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 black cross and coliseum there's like a a propulsion there that i think you know like this forward momentum and and these kind of like you know burly riffs and stuff like that like um so yeah that that was that was mostly conscious you know and of course like once you settle into that you want to push out of it and that's coliseum was always kind of pushing away from that while still having it you know so um and i, and I, I think for for a lot of people outside of louisville like coliseum and young widows and black cross and Breathe or resist like those were bands that defined without a doubt defined a certain era of louisville you know of course like for me it's it's hard for me to pinpoint that and Um, I think more than a Louisville sound is that like, we're such a small town and so few bands succeed and there is such a small scene and it's, you know, it's in all these little different pockets. And so I think for me, it's, it's, it's almost more like this almost small town mentality of just being freaks and weirdos and just into whatever you want to be into. And, and I always found that interesting. Like, um, like, I, you know, you mentioned you interviewed Jeff from Modern Life is War. Like, when Black Cross first met them on tour, we were like, these dudes are weird. <laughs> you know, they were like in this insane, shitty van. And, like, you know, they were just like freaky little skinny kids. And, uh, and we really connected with them. And, and through a lot of years, I often connected with people from the middle of nowhere and from the South and stuff like that because you kind of had to build punk on your own. You know, when you, when you grow up in a big city, like you're going to find this established punk culture and you're going to connect to it and you're going to be part of it. And there's potential to have your band grow where like, where we're from, there's no, there was no hope for that, you know, and there was no hope in Louisville for that. So we went outside of Louisville. And so to me, that's what Louisville is all about is just, being artistic freaks and weirdos that that are just trying so hard to reach out of here and, and to expand and, and, like, get out of this kind of, not that it's, like, an oppressive town for people like me, but, like, that kind of small town, you know, box that you're trapped into. So uh, that's one of the cool things about here.
0: Yeah, so I was actually really curious about that because, again, Long Island was a very conservative place, but its proximity to, to New York City is so close that, like, you're absolutely correct. You know that there's going to be a community of like-minded people right there. Um, I've been to Louisville once, so I maybe have the wrong impression, and I, I I don't mean to be purposefully ignorant if I am ignorant of of what it's like living in Kentucky. But I would imagine that it's a pretty red state. And I was really curious about sort of that juxtaposition of being in a subculture of being punks and freaks and kids trying to be themselves versus maybe like very conservative values in in the rest of the state and what I would imagine to be like pretty religious values.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, like I said, I grew up in this smaller town and I don't, I wasn't cognizant of that growing up like a little bit you know i grew up in like a semi like a, a very softly religious you know like a sunday school church on sunday kind of family but not not evangelical or 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 deeply conservative um but you know of course there's like that kind of like you know people yelling at you when you're skateboarding and stuff like that you know i mean um and so for coming to Louisville, Louisville and, and Lexington to some extent too, is the other biggest city in Kentucky. They're, they're kind of these, you know, more liberal havens, you know, because they're bigger cities, you know, they're not rural and they're more diverse and there is some opportunity, however small it may be, to, to, to experience an arts culture and things like that. Um, so it's interesting, you know, like I, I I don't feel oppressed by that. I think in the United States, like that, uh, meeting of, of progress and conservatism is so nationalized, you know, it's like, it's so there in the news and it's so there in like a, a a larger way that I don't feel like I've been rebelling against Kentucky much as a musician or artist, you know? And, And of course, like I think like a lot of things in this last year I had to reevaluate what Louisville was because of course I knew Louisville was segregated and I knew Louisville had racist aspects of, of course, but to see how like things played out in the last year with like the movement for black lives and, and the movement around justice for Breonna Taylor and how our democratic mayor reacted to that and how the police reacted to that and how certain people in the city reacted to that, you know, it's not, it's not a haven. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, it, it isn't, it's, it's very Kentucky, you know, and it's, and Uh, so that, that was interesting too. And and that's, uh, that's a good shakeup to be honest with you. Cause like you start to think, oh, I'm living in my world and we're all, you know, Nobody on my block is racist, and we're all, you know, progressive, and we live in this little arts area or whatever. And it's just not that; it's not as simple as it seems, and uh, it's very fucking hard for a lot of people in this city. And so, I think that that was a good a good shakeup for me to, to to realize, you know, to like to, to actually maybe not to realize, but to like have solidified kind of like the thing I was saying about like the 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 globalization the the global connection of people you know how you know a small outbreak of of COVID in Italy is like oh it's it's way over there and then you're just like no it's not it's 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 minuscule you know and and to think that this is a city that's progressive is is a, f- a foolish idea mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a it's a silly concept. And, um, yeah, so, so, so those things are interesting. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think, I don't know how much punk in Kentucky rebels against punk in in Louisville, at least rebels against Kentucky. I think in a lot of ways it it actually is connected to it. I feel like there's a lot of people here that kind of connect to like, Country music and bluegrass music and things like that, um, and and try to kind of find the good in the history here, um, and make good things with it for the future. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's interesting too for me. It's like I, I just so rarely connect what I do to here. You know, I just happen to live here. You know, it's like it, it's it's like what I've done in music. Whatever impact it's had, it's it's so much smaller here than it than it is, you know, around the world. To whatever extent that you know, it's a small mm-hmm. extent. But like, yeah, I just don't. It's like it's immaterial. It's just where I live. It's like where my family is from, and it's yeah. you know, hard to leave. You know.
0: I was going to ask you about uh, bluegrass because, you know, whenever I go somewhere and I'm planning to do episodes, I'm. Researching as much as possible, I reach out to a lot of people. You know, eight out of ten people never get back to you, and that's just that's just part of the game of doing this kind of thing. But pretty much everywhere I look, to like Kentucky bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass. That's a real big thing. Sorry, you're gonna hear my Brooklyn steam heat kicking on here. Okay, that's um, right. and you know, there's like obviously like sort of. I guess what you would call like pop country, like, like top 40 country stuff. But then there, there is stuff that has a lot of crossover appeal and even something like, uh, like Jason Isbell or something like, uh, a lot of folks within like the punk community, uh, will gravitate towards his music. Is there like a, a subsection of bluegrass music in Kentucky that has crossover appeal or is, are you into any of that kind of stuff?
2: I have to admit that I'm not like, I don't really know much about that stuff. I mean, there has been some connection. Like there was a guy who was very important in Louisville hardcore who named Mike Bacayu, who was in a a big band and did a a very important Louisville label called self-destruct and owned a record store. And at one point his record store like shifted entirely to bluegrass, you know? So there is that connection and there's like people that like a really important guy who, uh, Is involved with a guitar store here that was kind of like influential and important to all of us. Like when we were first buying good guitars and amps, you know, he kind of helped guide us. And he's, he's kind of connected to that and plays with a lot of those people and tours with those people and stuff like that. But for me personally, I don't really know that stuff. Um, and I know there's like kind of a new wave of like younger country that's coming up from here that I have friends that are into that stuff. But, I have to admit that I haven't really paid much attention to it. I mean, uh, once again, it's like I, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I do feel. I feel like maybe a little guilty that, that there's like maybe a history of Louisville music that I don't know, but it's or Kentucky music, but it's it's never really personally appealed to my tastes much, you know. So I have to I have to claim ignorance on that.
0: Does Louisville's location is it advantageous for tour packages or is it bad? Because I've seen that like you're a couple hours from Cincinnati, you're a couple hours from Nashville. I would imagine that that would make a tour really easy for bands because like you don't have to drive 14 hours from New York to whatever Columbus. Um, Is that the case or does it mean that like for a lot of tours you would get skipped over?
2: Yeah, we get skipped over most of the time. I mean, it's funny. It's like, there's a lot of talk through the pandemic of like missing shows and stuff like that. And I was thinking, damn, I mean, there were probably three shows in the previous year that came yeah. through that I was excited to see. I mean, it's just not, it's not the case. Um And that's partially location, but also partially because there's not the population here to support it. You know, we're much smaller than Cincinnati and St. Louis and mm-hmm. Nashville, and there's just not the at least things I'm interested in, there's not the culture to support it. And and sometimes there is, but, um, and so that's a a thing too, Uh, as a musician here, it's like, it's weird. It's like, sometimes it's hard. Uh, I mean, for so many years, and I'm thinking about it a lot because I didn't archive any of this stuff, but like for so many years I did shows. I put on hundreds and hundreds of shows myself and, and I didn't keep track of it, you know. But that's how I know so many people through music, and so much of what enabled me to tour and have a a life globally as a musician is because of all the people I met doing shows for them. And uh, you know, part of it's because I'm older, but like there's there's a, a little less of that, and that makes it harder as a musician to 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 kind of break out of here to escape this place. On the other hand, it is a pretty good place to live because you're close to so many places, you know? And like, as much as sometimes I might think it'd be great to live in Portland or Seattle, you're so isolated up there. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, even Southern California, it's like, you know, it's far to the next city. But for us, for Chicago to be five hours away and Nashville to be two and a half hours away, like, you can you can play a lot of places in you know, within an eight-hour radius here, when we were kids, we would drive overnight to New York, you know, and just do like a weekend of like New York and Philly or whatever. Um, so I think that location is cool, but it is weird. It, it I feel like we we're more and more isolated. Uh, I think beca- also part of that is because music has become so. Ugh! I don't even know what the word is, man. Like 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 things like ticket sales have become the absolute bottom line in music and in touring music and and so you know there's this thing called Polestar I guess it's still there but it's like what booking agents and promoters use to look at everyone's ticket sales so it's like Soundscan but for ticket sales so yeah. you can you know you look and say oh well the last time this band played here they sold this many tickets it's not worth it or I'm not going to book them and give them the money they need and even as, as a touring artist, booking tours is hard because they look and they go, you did this, this, and this last time, so you're not worth booking or you know, you're know, you only worth this much money. And when it becomes so much about the bottom line and not about the art and not about the, the desire to just book this band just because you want them to be here or you want them to play here. And I understand there is a bottom line, but uh that kills art you know yeah. i mean like so i don't know i don't know where we'll last i'm really curious actually post pandemic where we'll last too like one of my fears as a small small artist is that small artists will just get crushed because whenever these doors open however they open for music to happen in a live setting again large artists are going to dominate they're going to just, you know, everybody is waiting to tour. Every person that exists who tours is waiting to do it. And when that floodgate opens, they're all going to do it. So where do these small artists fit in when every night of the week there's a huge band touring and so many small venues have closed and things like that? I'm, I'm really, it's honestly something I'm, I'm very afraid of. Uh, and I kind of just have to shut my mind. <laughs> off to it because it's like, it, I can't, I can't know what that will be. But I think that's, that's this weird shift in music where it's, it's so much of it is becoming undervalued and it's like either undervalued or it's like valued too highly. Right. Like there's, you know, that wealth disparity and that, and that popularity disparity is so massive right now with music. I think, um, so yeah, that's, that's why people don't come here. I mean, I think it's the bottom line, like the money, the ticket sales. And that's, it's weird. You know, it's very hard.
0: I'm going to try to organize this thought that I have in my head. So, all right, <laughs> so bear with me. Um, when I was younger, probably to my own detriment, I had a very much like us versus them type of an attitude as a young person in a subculture. So even being in high school, I would see someone else from my school, like getting interested in punk or something like that. And I'd be like, well, wait a second. Like you always put down people like me, like you don't now get to participate in the thing. Like, this is my thing. Get the hell out of here. Right. Right. I've softened in with, with the passing of time. Um, And obviously I've matured a lot. But I was just having this conversation yesterday with my partner. So you might be able to hear me less. Um, there's still something I can't shut off. And like we were using the example of like Lady Gaga, right? So hear me out here. Um, at the start of her career, she was, yeah, my girlfriend's laughing at me <laughs> now. Um, at the start of her career, she she could have been anyone. She looked like anyone from anywhere and the industry created a character and that character is presented as alternative to the norm, I guess. Um, I, I saw the other day too, there's, you know, um, some, maybe I'm hating here, but like the major label artist who was like a rapper, Machine Gun Kelly, and he's like a 30 year old or something like playing like high school pop punk type of sound. Like, but that was a careful creation of this character. And maybe that's always existed. I think it's likely that like the Sex Pistols were playing characters a bit. um, But it still makes me angry. Uh, I mean, across mediums, so many of my favorite artists and authors and and. and people making media and movies, uh, you know, were poor or were strung out or committed suicide. Like I, I read through Richard Broudigan's books last year and like another one of so many famous people who shoots himself in the head. And it's like, I don't know, to me, all of these people laid the groundwork and in their time were very uncool. And I still have like a weird visceral reaction to seeing, even if it's just like an aesthetic commodified. Um, but I'm really not attached to any of that stuff in the sense that I'm not a creative that I've ever put out music and had to actually suffer. And I did one tour with my friends as like the roadie. I was driving the van, but like I've I've never suffered and for my art or worried about, paying my rent off of like, yeah, 10 kids showing up to a show or whatever. Um, you know, as having now been in this for decades, does that type of thing bother you at all? Or do you not even think about it? Um,
2: I mean, a, a character or like a theatricality in music, I appreciate to be honest with you. Like I, I might not have at some point in my life, but I, I really love that, you know, like I love, sorry, an alarm going off here. Uh, you know, whether it's like, like the, the damned, you know, and, and, and Dave Vanian is like a vampire and the other guys are just punks. Like, I love that. Like, I, I think it's cool. And, uh, I really like that. A lot of music. I, I I like sincerity, but I also like artifice. I like a creation, and I don't care who created it. Like, you know, I mean, I I love the Sex Pistols. Like, that was a huge band for me as a kid, and I still think that record is like flawless, amazing record. And you know, the in, the the endless arguing about like who created them or who formed them or whatever. I'm just like, I don't care. You know, it's it's good. It's not like. You know, I don't care who, who formed new edition, you know, like, it's like, if I loved it, then I love it or, or whatever. So I don't know. I mean, I, so I, I don't know about all that stuff. Like, I, I, I in terms of like mainstream culture, I don't, re- I don't think about it much. Like, I don't listen to it. And I, you know, kind of what you're saying, I, like, I'm happy to not know what that stuff mm. is. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know, every once in a while I'm like, oh, maybe I should listen to this song because I'm curious cause it's become part of like the, the cultural conversation. And then I'm like, I'd rather just not know. Like I know what machine gun Kelly looks like vaguely. Cause I've seen a photo of him. I wouldn't know him if he stood in front of me and I've never heard his music. And I'm like, cool. Right. Like, um, so that doesn't bother me actually. Um, I mean, there are all sorts of things that bother me in music, but most of them for me come down to insecurity and jealousy and, and, and pettiness and, and, um, and I try to squash that as much as possible, you know, it's like, it might be a, a fleeting thought and usually it, it relates to, you know, something that I, some level of success that I want that I haven't attained and that's not worthwhile for me to think about. So I just try to put that out of my mm. head, you know, um, you know, and, and I still have some of what you're saying. I mean, I, I think... I think that like exclusionary aspect to punk or to any culture is very weird because it can be toxic, but it can also be very helpful. Mm. There's, you know, it's like um kind of like I was saying would go on to shows when I was a kid and it was scary. And that was good. Like I I was welcomed eventually, and I was welcomed there. I mean, I was able to get in the door. Nobody hugged me
0: yeah. <laughs> when
2: I walked in the door, but like, you know what I mean? But like, when I started doing a band I handed demos around to like the, the luminaries, the local scene, like some of them wrote me back and some of them put me on shows and, and they acknowledged me and they supported me. And, but nobody rolled out the red carpet. Like I was talking about that guy who, who played bluegrass, who uh, works the local guitar store and, and people, like I've had a couple friends that like, man, he's he's so mean, yeah, and he's not mean. And I'm like, you know, he, he's sarcastic. And when we were kids, he would tease us a little bit, but it was scary to go in there. Like it was scary to go into a place and look at three thousand dollar Les Pauls and look at Marshall amps and not understand what they were and want them. And but to be honest, they were they were helpful to me. I mean, I remember those people letting me put guitars on layaway and and let me do guitars on payment plans and things like that. Like when I was a teenager and, and they assisted me, they helped me learn how to work these, they didn't teach me how to play, but they helped me learn how to plug them up and whatever and, and turn them on. And, and, you know, I mean, I I, kind of hate like tattoo culture, but like, or I just don't care about it. But you know, when I was first getting tattooed and like, going to a tattoo shop, it was intimidating. You know, people might not have been that nice to you and it might have been like, you don't know what you want. And of course my first tattoos sucked because I didn't know what I wanted. Nobody guided me. And I think that rite of passage is sometimes good. And I think having a healthy distrust of interlopers is, I don't know, I I think it's okay. You Mm. know, it's like if, if I... I mean, if, if, if I enter into like a, uh, an activist setting or protest setting, they should be distrustful of me. They, when I walk in, they should think I'm a narc, you know, or a cop because why the fuck not? Like, you know, I haven't proven myself. They don't know who I am. And I think that's okay. You know, I think, I think that's okay. I think you have to meet people and learn who they are and learn to trust them and, and sometimes you got to kind of fight through all the bullshit to, to get to the sincerity, you know? So I, uh, you know, so you're, what you're saying is like I had that exact same experience when I was a kid of like, cause I got into punk, like right before it became the nineties explosion. Like I was talking with my partner about Jane's addiction last night for a second. And like, I remember having Jane's addiction tapes and then when Ben Caught ceiling became like a hit on MTV, kids that, you know, I'm not saying they were mean to me, I'm just saying they didn't give a shit about my culture beforehand were suddenly like, oh, this is cool. And it's was like, well, no, fuck you. You know, like, that's not cool. You can't like it. And then I'm not going to like that band anymore. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I personally like detest Nirvana because of what it meant to me, because it meant the commodification of my culture. And it, and... Like I listen to it and I'm like, oh God, like this is, this represents a million jocks getting into punk and this rep, you know, like, and I understand that there are people that I'm very close with that got into a little bit later and it represents everything to them. It, it you know, so it, it's okay. But I think that's all okay. You know, I mean, uh, and I, I don't know. I, I don't have any problem with music being sold as a product and I don't have any problem with marketing it honestly, any way you can, you know, I mean, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I don't really, like in terms of like, like Lady Gaga or something, I don't really know much about her, you know, like, I mean, she seems legit. I mean, you know, I have to say like, if I had the outlet to have designers dress me and, and, and whatever else, like, you know, fuck, yeah, sure. Like, I'd take (laughs) it, you know, like, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, those are kind of two separate ideas for me, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think I understand. Um, I won't keep you too much longer. I appreciate that you've given me this much time. Um, if anybody hadn't known who you were prior to listening um, and they're listening for the first time, there will be examples of the music you play embedded in the episode, so they'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, this will be another long thought, so bear with me. Um when i listen to photo crime in my head <laughs> i get a lot of these like like 80s movie montages so um like the the opening sort of guitar lead in love is a devil to me like matches up perfectly with like an 80s movie horror montage and you just like cut 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 different scenes um i remember when I really, really love, um, death knows your name by, uh, the hope conspiracy. And I remember Mm. when that came out reading in an interview with Kevin Baker and he was like, oh yeah, I was just binging horror movies. And then like, if you, if you listen to the song animal farm, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like (laughs) this is coming from a horror movie. Um, you know, I was scrolling through, uh, some of the stuff on your Instagram and there's a picture of you reading a book. And, uh, you mentioned that it's Paul Bowles and, you know, I've went to Tangier two years ago. So like, I'm, I'm trying to read everything that came out of there prior to going there. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is all an incredibly long winded way of saying for the, the music that you're making now, what are the sort of artistic inspirations that you're pulling from, uh, when you're creating that music?
2: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, maybe like to your listener, like you're saying, they'll they'll give an example or whatever, but so photo crime, you know, after doing Coliseum, this other band I did that I guess I'm most known for, I did that band for 12 years and, and it felt like it'd run its course. And uh, so I started writing and performing music on my own. So photo crime is essentially me solo. And I kind of try to, Bridge a lot of like electronic elements, like mostly uses programmed drums and like synthesizer with, with guitar and bass, uh, like, which were kind of my primary instruments. There's a lot of things. It's like, this is, it's interesting as you, as I've grown, I found myself returning in an interesting way kind of back to like the things you first loved, like I saw, Photocrime really, you know, Photocrime. I mean, sorry, Coliseum started as a very punk, raw, D-beat, hardcore kind of thing, and then kind of became more like of a, a post-hardcore band, like more melodic. And I kind of saw that I was returning back to like a little more of my roots of like the the Discord stuff and like some of the like '90s indie rock and, and, and post-punk kind of stuff that I was into growing up and Photocrime is almost even more back to like that first wave, like before I discovered that hardcore existed, I listened to The Cure and to Depeche Mode and, um, you know, all that kind of 80s stuff that was kind of like the, the more pop. Uh, lineage of of post punk, and so musically there's kind of that, and then I also kind of somehow wanted to have this, even if it's just in my own head and no one else picks up on it, this kind of connection to to like rockabilly, to like the '60s, like Roy Orbison and uh, 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 Ricky Nelson, and and some stuff like that, like Eddie Cochran. Uh, in my mind it's kind of a mixture of those things. So there's, there's that element in guitar and in some of the visual aspect and and maybe some of the vocals mixed with this kind of more modern, or at least, you know, in the last, in my lifespan music. Um, So sonically, those are kind of the, the, the touchstones. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that come in and out. I'm like, the band Portishead is one of my favorite bands of all time. And that's like always hugely inspiring to me. And, 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 uh, you know, a lot of like the early electronic punk bands, like suicide and DAF and and stuff like that. But then like cinematically and, and, and with like some literature, that's like a huge part of it, but it's actually for me really more about like this, like, Black and white um, kind of film noir type of thing. Like that's I don't see Photocrime as a soundtrack to that, but it's like that is what visually inspires mm. the band and, and that's kind of where the name came from indirectly. And this this kind of mixture of like that like 40s black and white film detective hard-boiled kind of thing leading into the, the forties and fifties melodramas like, uh, uh, the movies of Douglas Sirk. And I actually watched one yesterday I've owned for a long time and just finally watched called Leave Her to Heaven. That's kind of a very interesting mixture of melodrama and film noir. It's, it's all, it's in color, but it's that really beautiful, lurid technicolor, really rich and crazy, crazy forties, sets that that are like, just, just kind of set my brain on fire, you know, like, like dreaming of living in them. But it was a, it was a femme fatale noir. So visually, like those are the things that I really um, see the band or the, the, the music coming from. And then also some things kind of like Wings of Desire, the Vim Vendors movie, you know, that's like, it's eighties, Berlin, but it's, it's black and white. It has that very cold post-war crumbling concrete kind of thing. I think of like the third man a lot, you know, which is, which is uh Vienna post-war, you know, and there's just, everything is deep shadows and broken concrete and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I'm into as a traveler. Like I'm not really a nature guy. Like I love nature of course, but like, I'm more interested in, in architecture and, and, and museums and things like that. I generally gravitate to things that man has built for whatever reason. Mm. Um, You know, old churches and things like that. So um, I see all that as kind of being the visual aspect of of a photo crime. And and certainly like Paul Bowles is a huge inspiration and uh, a reference, like uh, there's a song on, on South of heaven, the most recent photo crime album named after a bulls novel. And, um, there's a, a song and record I'm working on now named after one of his short stories. And, uh, those kind of, those, those novels that like inspired noir, like I really like all the Raymond Chandler stuff and, and, uh, Patricia Highsmith and those kind of things. It's, it's it's interesting. Like, I, I kind of hate, like, I hate masculinity. I hate, like, toxic masculinity, of course, and, like, being a, a large white man. It's, like, this kind of thing that I'm very cognizant of. But there is this kind of, like, artifice of masculinity, like, that I, that I connect to. Like, and I even think Bowles has it a little bit, where it's kind of like, look at these people living their ideal lives. They're going to be crushed, you know, and like, look at these, these hard-boiled detectives that are, that are all artifice and they're all fake and it's all built up and they're just kind of digging into the darkness and they're failed as, as humans, but they're still trying to kind of find the good in it, you know, and, and even Bowles, I think like a lot of his stuff is kind of like, it's ultimately about the good. It's, it's usually like these people that have gone astray because of their own ignorance or their own, you know, their own, uh, ego or whatever, you know, like people, like American tourists coming into, to Africa, you know, thinking they can just beat it or, or just, you know, do whatever they want and, and Africa winning, you know what I mean? Whether, whether it's like, uh, you know literal or figurative. And, and to me, that's kind of like the earth winning over, over that, that, uh, that human ego. So yeah, those are kind of the things that that connect with it. Like, I mean, certainly like I grew up watching eighties movies and I grew up in that era and I love all that stuff. And I love, I love horror and horror was very important for me as a kid in transitioning into art house. Like, you know, it was like, if I hadn't discovered, Evil Dead and and Dead Alive and shit like that, like, I wouldn't have discovered, you know, the next level of, like, of indie movies and DIY movies and stuff like that. So, but yeah, those are the things that that, that connect with. And it's funny, because I've never, even though I see the music as being very cinematic or, like, it's kind of like you're saying, like, I see it as scenes from cinema. I don't ever think of it as, Actually, being the soundtrack to cinema, which is is just kind of interesting. I've never thought that before, but yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think any, maybe a couple photo crime songs would fit into the movies that I love that inspire it. I mean, the visuals could maybe connect, but, um, but yeah, that, that's it. I mean, there's kind of these all these things. Like, there's this weird again another weird dichotomy of like I know objectively that like mid century America is bad, right? Like it's bad for women. It's bad for black people. It's bad for a lot of things. Uh, but there's something about it. I think maybe because I I grew up in that time where that was kind of idealized by my parents' generation. And so I see all that and I find like this great comfort in it, you know, that kind of like innocence of early rock and roll and and the kind of like rockabilly crooners and that like, you know, like Ricky Nelson songs connecting to Ozzy and Harriet and having grown up seeing those things in those, those homes. And, and, and that's kind of like that film noir stuff kind of leads into that, that like idealized suburban life and the Douglas Cirque movies that I'm obsessed with are kind of like a deconstruction of that. Um, so I objectively know that's like a bad time. But like in my mind, if I if I could time travel, it's like I want to put myself in those movie sets. Like I don't want to sit there in that, which is like the the most pointless time you could time travel to, right? You know what I mean? You should go to, I don't know what, you go see fucking dinosaurs or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but I immediately think like, oh, I'd love to go hang out at some hotel built in 19... 19- 47 or, you know, I'd like, I'd love to see Louisville in the sixties. It's very funny. It's, it's like very pointless and it's not a, it's not a well thought out concept, but, but all that ties into this. Um, Maybe, yeah, maybe in my own head, maybe nobody else will ever hear that in it, but that's there.
0: I, I think I understand that point entirely when I'm traveling. I always think back to like, ah, if this could be 60 years ago, like when, everyone wasn't rushing to this one spot to get their selfie and then run away. Like, um, so I, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, listen, this was a real pleasure for me. Everyone thanks, listening me knows they can go to the notes for this episode in whatever app you're using and I'll link to music, website, shirts, all that stuff that people can find at. Um, yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for doing this with me.
2: Yeah, thanks Tim, it was a blast. Appreciate it.
0: Hey, everyone. That is a wrap on episode 207 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Haven't been many voyages in a while, but I've got a lot of stuff in the works for this year. I'm coming up on my second vaccine shot soon. So hopefully that makes me at least a little bit safer going out into the world uh, because I've got the itch. I've really got the itch. But for now, I'm really humbled and gracious that so many incredible and amazing people and artists and travelers are willing to do these remotely. And so Ryan is no different. So thank you so much, Ryan, for doing this. Uh, Thank you to all of you Voyagers out there, as always, for tuning in. I'm going to play you a song by Ryan's old band, Coliseum. So you're going to hear that right after this outro. And as always, Voyagers, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon.